Let us pray. So, Father, we do indeed ask for your continuing and ever-increasing grace to more fully trust you as our great all-in-all day by day. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. And again, good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. So glad that you've joined us. I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices and turn to the 12th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel this morning. For the next few weeks, we'll be taking a break from our study of Ephesians, and we'll be talking about stewardship. And those of you that um, have been around All Saints for a little while with me know that my approach to stewardship is to talk about it in a broad sense, not just about money, because stewardship is far more than finances. It's really about the right ordering of the entirety of our lives. But stewardship does involve money. It does involve our finances. And our pledge Sunday will be Sunday, October 31st. And you'll be receiving more information um, both in the newsletter and by snail mail and by email in the next few days about that. However, money is not the essence of stewardship. If you remember a few weeks back as we were looking at Ephesians chapter 3, St. Paul said this in verses 1 through 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you heard of, God, of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, know the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And the words here that I want to bring emphasis to are the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Those are Paul words, Paul's words. And the reality is that every single one of us who is a beneficiary and recipient of God's incredible grace extended to us through Jesus Christ has been entrusted with a God-given responsibility to be faithful stewards of all, of everything that God has entrusted to us. To be faithful stewards of the deposit of God's good grace in our lives, if you will. Stewardship does indeed encompass the entirety of our lives and it encompasses and reflects our fidelity to the fullness of the gospel. And how we steward our finances is really an indication of how fully we are submitted to Christ and how deeply our commitment to align our hearts and lives with the priorities of his eternal kingdom truly and genuinely reaches into the core of who we are. So today, focusing on our gospel reading from Luke 12, I want to look mostly at verses 31 through 34. These verses are the culmination of the words of instruction Jesus gives to his disciples, backing up all the way to verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. And everything that Jesus says here is really summed up in verses 31 through 34. And what Jesus says, I believe, boils down to two key points. The first one is the will of our Heavenly Father. And the second one is the priorities of our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. Verse 31 establishes the overarching principle. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. The bottom line is this. When we seek God and we seek his kingdom, everything else in our lives 
falls into its proper place and its proper order of priority. Did you hear that? When we seek God and his kingdom, everything else in our lives falls into its proper place and its proper order of priority. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that life is always easy. It doesn't mean that everything will go smoothly. It, never mean, it doesn't mean that we will never encounter difficulty or adversity. Sometimes you hear folks indicate or allude to that when that's completely false. And it's, the not, it's not the historic testimony of the church. Look at the lives of the apostles whose lives were fully submitted to Christ and the priorities of his kingdom. All save one died as martyrs and St. John was exiled to Patmos when he died. And look at the history of not only the early church, but so many Christians down through the centuries who laid down their lives as faithful martyrs to the cause of the gospel. But there is incredible blessing and peace in a life fully surrendered to God's will and to his kingdom priorities. Jesus begins at verse 32 with these words, fear not little flock, for it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And the overarching theme that continues throughout these few verses is the father's good pleasure. The father's good pleasure. But what does the father's good pleasure look like? When Jesus speaks of the Father's good pleasure, he is speaking of God the Father's will. And my first point is this. We can know and we can walk in God's will. It is the Father's good pleasure. In other words, it's accurate to say it is the Father's will to give you the kingdom. So let's take a few minutes and unpack all of this. So these believers here are referred to as little flock. And that was not to denigrate them or somehow minimize their significance. But the fact is they were new young believers and they were also a very small group of people. Remember Luke's original audience here. Luke is the apostle, the evangelist to the, not the apostle, the evangelist to the Gentiles. And Luke's audience, those to whom his gospel was first sent during the first century, were not only persecuted Christians, they were also Gentiles. And this little flock had many reasons to be fearful. They were living lives filled with temporal uncertainty. When they looked at things purely in the natural, their future seemed uncertain, even bleak in many circumstances or instances. There were questions like, would they be fully and truly embraced by the Jewish Christians? Would embracing Christ and the gospel cost them their homes, their employment, perhaps even their very lives? Yet God reassures them in the midst of lives filled with earthly uncertainties that they really and truly can trust him. That even in times like the ones in which they lived, through the grace and power of the living God at work in them, they could live lives that were not consumed, controlled, or driven by anxiety or fear. Instead, they could indeed and truly live lives filled with God's life and God's peace. Lives characterized by the blessings of his eternal kingdom. And moreover, moreover, 
It was God's pleasure, even his delight to do this in them. God delighted in doing this in them. We live in a very different day and time in in so many ways. Real life similarities to these early believers are much more of a reality in our day for Christians in some other regions of the world where they do indeed live daily with the threat of deprivation, violence, and death because of their faith in Jesus. Yet as believers, even right here, right now, in our relatively comfortable setting, we often allow our lives to become filled with fears and anxiety because we are trusting or have allowed ourselves to begin trusting in some way in the things of this world. Things that in reality rob us of peace and even hinder us in doing God's will and experiencing the blessings of his kingdom. Knowing and walking in the will of God, brothers and sisters, boils down to trust. Can we, will we, even in difficult circumstances, surrender our cares and our lives to Jesus Christ? Do we trust him to such an extent that we love God's will more than anything else? Let me ask that again. Do we trust him to such an extent that we love God's will more than anything else? Can you and I trust him to the point that we treasure the blessings of his eternal kingdom above any and all earthly treasures? And out of that, can we trust him with our treasures? I love the example of a pastor that I encountered on a missions trip a number of years ago, actually all the way back in the 90s, when I went to Mexico. And his name was Enrique Gutierrez. And churches, it's very difficult for churches to buy property in Mexico. And he had planted a church, had a wife and four kids, four little boys, and they could not buy property. He lived in a four-room house with his family, two bedrooms and open area and necessity room and they couldn't buy property so his solution to that was we will cut our house in half so that the back portion of our property can be used to build a church what a beautiful example of not treasuring the things of this world above the treasures of Christ's eternal kingdom how much do we love and earnestly desire the will of God for our lives for our families, our households? How much do we desire it for All Saints Church? I like what the late Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, wrote. It is not enough to do the will of God because his will is unavoidable, nor is it enough to will what he wills because we have to. We have to will his will because we love it. Let me read that again because this was a profound Quote to me, it's from his book, No Man is an Island. It is not enough to do the will of God because his will is unavoidable, nor is it enough to will what he wills because we have to. We have to will his will because we love it. It is God's delight to empower us to walk in his will as we trust him, as we grow to more fully love his will. 
And loving his will includes faithful stewardship of the entirety of our lives. Because it is indeed God's good pleasure to give his children the kingdom. The second point we see here in verse 33. What we cling to shapes who we are. Verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Have you ever thought, why is it that so often in Jesus' teachings and throughout the entirety of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, that the will of God, obedience, and trust are connected to money and to riches? because our perspective regarding earthly riches shines a spotlight into the priorities of our hearts. And it shines God's light on our real affections and where we are really and truly placing our trust. Because love of worldly riches stands in direct opposition to the love of God and love for the priorities of his kingdom. And the love of the things of this world is an incredibly misplaced love, hear me, that never, never satisfies. The writer of Ecclesiastes said this, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money or he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. In 2018, the Harvard Business School undertook a first of its kind study where they interviewed 4,000 millionaires in the United States asking them about, so this is just three years ago, asking them about how much money it would take to make them happy. Each millionaire was asked to report how much they currently had, how happy they were on a scale of one to 10, and then how much money they thought they would need to get to a 10 on the happiness scale. Shockingly, 26%, the largest percentage in the survey, said 10 times more. The largest possible option given. 24% chose five times more. And 23% said twice as much as what I already have. Only 13% of the respondents said they currently have enough to be happy. Perhaps most surprisingly of all, this answer was consistent no matter how much money the person had meaning that someone who, with $100 million was just as likely as a person with $10 million to select that they needed 10 times as much to be happy. In an interview with The Atlantic magazine, the lead researcher, Michael Norton, suggested that the problem for so many millionaires is comparison. So the question of happiness is not so much, do I have enough, but do I have more than those around me? Are we building treasures in heaven? Are we building treasures that are eternal? Or are we trying to cling to the things of this world? Perhaps even trying to to build our own earthly kingdoms just like the people in the world around us. Let's think about that for a moment. Do you or I somehow convince ourselves that we're entitled to some measure of earthly wealth that it's owed to us? perhaps because of what we think we have done or because what we think we have accomplished? 
do we at least in part fail to recognize that everything, hear me, everything that we have is by God's grace, that it is from God and that it all ultimately, all of it came from him and it belongs to him, that he has entrusted it to us as his people to be faithful and responsible stewards. What we hold on to, what we cling to, really does shape who we are. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, writing in the second century, he lived 70 to 156 AD, said this, if anyone does not refrain from the love of money, it will, he will be defiled by idolatry and so be judged as if he were one of the heathen. See, in the Roman world, when a person shared his or her wealth, they did it with the intent to place the recipient in the giver's debt. So if I gave money to someone, then I had them on a string. They were at my beck and call. And gifts were also given to secure or advance one's position in the community. In other words, I was going to give, but I expected a whole lot in return, and I was climbing the ladder. Things really haven't changed all that much. And we as Christians need to be careful and check our hearts to make sure that somehow some measure of this kind of thinking hasn't crept in in some way as a motivation for us in our giving, whether that be to church or to other people or to other organizations. That we haven't gotten to the place where we give even at a subconscious level to place others in some sort of place of obligation to us. Or even worse, in our giving, do we in some foolish way think that we can place God himself in our debt or obligate him through our giving to do something for us? Now, first mentioned that may sound absurd, but quite frankly, that's a whole lot of what you hear with much preaching on television and even in the community around us. That somehow, if I give, if I sow, if I do this, God then is obligated to do certain things for me that I might demand or speak or require of him. And that is not scriptural. And I have to tell you, that is an incredibly small view of who God is. God is calling us to order our life priorities in a way that reflects a heart, again, as Thomas Merton said, that loves the will of God. The God we serve calls and empowers us to be radically counterculture, to not give and steward our lives in the way that the world around us stewards things or life. The God we serve calls and empowers us to live in this world, but to not be of this world. He's calling us to be outposts of his eternal kingdom right here in the midst of darkness that surrounds us. And to be these outposts of his kingdoms requires clinging steadfastly to him and to him alone. It requires that we love the values and the priority of God's eternal kingdom above the values and the priorities of this world so that our lives are shaped and molded according to God's 
priorities. What we cling to, that which we hold on to, shapes who we are, whether we're willing to admit it or not. And then finally, what we treasure demonstrates where we are placing our trust. Look at verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Many of you have seen the movie or read the book, All the President's Men. The movie was based on the book by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, who back in the early 1970s as reporters for the Washington Post uncovered the whole Watergate scandal and the depth of it. If you remember in the money, the, their secret informant who would meet them in a parking garage in really crazy hours of the day or night to give them information, who, the secret informant we know now was FBI agent Mark Felt, who's deceased, but would say to them, follow the money. Follow the money. The actual wording that was said there in the book was not quite as dramatic was the key was the secret campaign cash and it all needs to be traced. But that still can be condensed down to follow the money. If we follow the money, if we follow how we invest our time, our treasures and talents, the underlying motivations of all this, it leads right to our heart. And like it or not, it is an incredibly accurate picture of where we truly are placing our trusts and where our life realities are centered, truth be known. Follow the money. What is the priority of our hearts? Verse 32 again, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the question for us today isn't so much about money and financial support, but how are we living as faithful stewards of the grace which God has entrusted to us? With our time, with our talents, with how we order our lives, how we raise our children, how we share the gospel, and also following the money, because the money will truly speak about where our priorities really lie. So, as we conclude this morning, what I would like to do is ask us to take a moment. And just ask God by his grace to search our hearts, all of us together, that we would evaluate in light of the voice of his Holy Spirit, how we're doing with stewarding that grace, that sacred trust that has been given to us and where God wants to work in our hearts and lives and in the life of this church to more fully align us with his kingdom and the priorities of his his, the priorities of his eternal kingdom and the priorities that make a difference not just now, but for all of eternity. So let us pray. Father, we do pause in your presence and we ask that you would search our hearts with the assurance that it is your good will and your delight 
as your little flock to give us the kingdom. So Lord, speak to us about faithful stewardship, not just of money, God, but of all that you have entrusted to us, the good deposit of grace that you have placed in us. And Lord, give us grace to repent, to adjust, to reprioritize and to line our hearts, our lives, our families, our church more fully in accord with your will and your kingdom priorities. Speak to us in the days to come, Lord, about what you would have us to do in terms of giving, tithing and beyond tithing, giving sacrificially to the work of your kingdom. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.